And in John chapter 4, Jesus has been traveling, he's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been leading others to a relationship with himself. Now you and I have a different calling on our life. As disciples of Jesus, he said, if anybody would come after me, if anybody would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. There's a a pattern there. We are to deny ourselves, which we're not good at. I, well, I'll say I'm not good at it. Maybe you guys are. To deny ourselves, to take up our cross, which we wear them around our neck, right? We have a cross necklace many people do. But in our modern day society, the equivalent would be to take a, a, an electric chair or a, a needle that puts in these noxious chemicals to put someone to death for punishment. But the Romans, they would put people to death by using a crucifix, this deadly instrument, one of the most crucial, uh, one of the most cruel ways to die, really, because it's not so much that the nails in your hands are what kills you or the bleeding, but it's actually that every time you take in a breath, because you're displayed and hanging from nails, every time you take in a breath, you can't breathe out. And so you're dying by suffocation. And many times, because they would hang up there for so long, they would actually take uh, an instrument and they would break the legs of the criminal that was being punished so that he would no longer be able to hold himself up on his nailed feet. And so a very brutal death, right? And in our day and age, we have the electric chair or we have something similar. But can you imagine if you walked into town and country and somebody had around their necklace this beautiful gold necklace with a with a, an electric chair on it, it would be kind of gross, right? You'd be like, why? And that's kind of morbid. Why would you wear that? Well, in the same way, we, we wear crosses, but we kind of lose the meaning because it's become jewelry. It's become something beautiful. Now, to us as believers, the reality is it is a beautiful thing. It's a remarkable thing. It's a, it's a grotesque. And if you've ever seen any of the movies where they portray the crucifixion, it is very, very hard to watch if you are in Christ because you go, that, that was for me. He personally did that for me. But in, in that day, the only people that were put on the cross were not people that we would think highly of. They were criminals. They were thieves. They were people they wanted to make an example of. They would crucify them next to a road so that everyone would say, Whoa, I don't want to break their rules. A few years ago, I was in um, probably in elementary school, and I remember coming across the, the news. There was this young man from the United States that had went to Singapore. And I don't remember what he had done, but it was like a misdemeanor. He had broken a rule. He had stolen or done something like that. And while he was there, their law was, if you steal or if you do any minor infraction, we will publicly beat you with sticks. We're going to whack you. We're going to give you a spanking, probably the spanking you never got when you were growing up. And in their culture, there's not a whole lot of crime because they know that if you commit crime, you will receive the consequences, and it's going to be humiliating. But the word humiliate actually is the root word for humble. So sometimes we need some humiliation. But that said, the cross is this symbol of torture, and yet it's this symbol for those who believe in Christ, a symbol of life. And so we receive life through this death that our Savior has taken upon himself for us. So Jesus has not yet been crucified, but he is still pursuing relationships with people that will ultimately lead to salvation. That's the desire. 
So in John chapter 4, we meet up with Jesus as he's been traveling with his disciples. And it says in John chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize anybody, but his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, if you know anything about the geography of the land that they lived in, to go to Judea and depart from Galilee to get there was really a straight shot. You didn't need to go through Samaria. Well, actually, I take that back. You needed to go through Samaria to get there. But what they would do, because they didn't have any dealings with the Samaritans, is they would make this big, long journey to go around them because they didn't want to catch spiritual Samarian cooties on the way through. Now, maybe there's a town like that around here where people avoid, like the plague, in order to not have to go through it. Um, I'm trying to think of a place, but I can't think of one off my mind. But, but the reality is the Jews, they said, you know what, if we're going to go by that way, we're going to go all the way around because we don't want to be around them. We don't identify with them. They're sinners. They're gross. If we go through there, then we're going to lose whatever it is, a cleanliness that we have from our relationship with God. So they thought pretty highly of themselves, and they thought pretty low of the Samaritans. And so it says there that Jesus said this, that he, when he departed again to Galilee, he needed to go through Samaria. And in one of the Gospels, it actually says that. He said, I must need go through Samaria. It, it wasn't a need, but it was a way that he decided he needed to go through because the Father had given him instructions to go that way. Jesus said, I do everything that the Father tells me to do, even when it means I'm going to go through an area where my disciples might not like it or the people that see me might not like it. And so he left Judea, he departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So he's referring back to Genesis. This is land that's been Israel's, and it's a plot of land that was given to Joseph from Jacob. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied or tired from his journey, he sat by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. So the sixth hour is kind of the heat of the day. There you are. You've been traveling on a journey and you get to this well of water. Well, it wasn't like what we have. Think about this. You guys ever go to the zoo? You're walking. You don't want to pay the $800 or the $18 for the water bottle. And so you go and find the nearest water puddle. And by that water puddle, you'll find this big fountain that kids are playing in, and there's the little mist fan, and everybody can cool themselves off. Well, this is kind of the same thing. He was coming to a well. There was no spigot. There was no hydrant. There was these wells that were hewn out of the ground that when the water would run into them, or when it would rain, or the water table would come up, you could actually put a pail down there, and you could pull it back up, and it'd be full of ice-cold water many times even though you're in the middle of a place that's very arid or dry. And so he shows up at the well. Now think about this. Water is a place where people kind of come together. We all need water, right? Much like in our day, you'll see met many more people at a restaurant than you will in the middle of a parking lot because they're all around the time of lunch. People are hungry and they all gather together. And so that's what's going on. Jesus is doing what he does and he's hungry He's thirsty, and he shows up, and there is this well. 
So a woman of Samaria came to draw water. She also came to the same spot. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had left him. They'd gone into the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Now you can see there's a cultural boundary that Jesus has just broken. He's talking to somebody. They know he's Jewish, whether it's because of what he's wearing, whether it's because of his facial features, we don't know. But she knows that he's a Jew. And so she says, how come you're talking to me? You're not supposed to talk to me. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. We all know this. We watched uh, Remember the Titans last night with Andrew. Andrew stayed over. And while we were watching Remember the Titans, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie. There they are. We've got the 60s going on. They've decided they're going to consolidate the school. And because of that, this football team is completely rocked. They bring in a black football coach, and they decide he's going to be the head coach. And, of course, the head coach that's been there forever is a little upset because he's going for the Hall of Fame. There's all these other things that go along with it. But they go off to camp to spend all this time learning their plays. And while they're being trained, they get there, and the coach says, you guys are going to interact. Because if you don't interact as a team, the team will fail. So we got to get over this hump. And so he makes them room with one another. And then he makes them learn things about each other to find out that they're both human. Many times we have people in our lives that we will not interact with. Maybe because of a family rift. We're in a small town. That happens, right? Maybe because they live on the other side of the tracks. We really have that going on here. And maybe sometimes we don't interact with them because of something they did 10 years ago or five years ago, or their grandparent did to our grandparent, whatever it might be. But Jesus interacts with this woman, and it breaks down a barrier. And so he says to her, give me a drink. And that alone shows that he's different than all the other Jews, just due to the fact that he interacts with them. So the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no de dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, Here's the thing. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So this woman comes to the well. She has a very practical need. What is it? It's water. Jesus has living water the well has water. And so he uses this practical need that she has, this conversation, very ordinary. And he asks her for a drink, and she says, you know, and, and, and it, he asks her for a drink, and he, she can't believe he's asking. And then he says to her, if you knew who I am, if you knew that I'm the gift of God, you would ask me for a drink and you would never thirst again. That's what he's going to say. So the woman said to him, sir, uh, you don't have anything to draw with. She's still answering on the practical side. You want something to drink, you ask me, and then I ask you, why would you even ask me? And then she asks him, how in the world do you have any water? You can't even draw from this well because they had to have a pail to put on the rope to drag down there to raise back up the water in. You don't have that. What do you mean you have living water? So she's got this question, and because she's got a question, Jesus is therefore able to answer it. The woman said to him, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? 
You know, like we've always drawn water from this well. Where are you getting it from? Why are you even here if you don't need it? These are all the questions that are welling up in her. No pun intended. And then she says in verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, speaking of the water in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So she's starting to get the idea that he's not talking about water. He's not talking about this clear stuff that she's going to drink herself and then feed to her animals. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I, I may not thirst again, nor come here to draw. Who wouldn't want a drinking fountain at their house? You know, these people have to come every time. Wouldn't it be amazing if all of a sudden we never had to go to the grocery store again? I mean, have you considered that? How many times do you have to go? It's kind of like cutting wood where you go out in the woods, you cut the wood down, then you got to pick it up, put it in the trailer. If you don't split it there, and then you got to pick it up again to split it. And then you got to pick it up to put it on the trailer again and then put it on your porch. It's, groceries are the same way. You go to the grocery store, you put all the groceries in, you take them out to the car. Well, before that, you go to the cash register, you run them down the thing, and then you put them in the cart, and then you put them in your car, and then you take them out of your car, and then you take them out of the bags and put them in your... Oh my goodness. If I could just have one step and just have it there already and never have to go to the grocery store, I'm in. And that's what the woman is saying. She goes, I would love to not have to walk all the way to this place again to get water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. She's intrigued, and he says, okay, go get your husband and come here. So verse 17, the woman answered and said something quite peculiar, something that you may not expect. She said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband, for you do not have, excuse me, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. So Jesus, just in an everyday practical conversation, of course, he's divine, he knows all things, he is God, he's fully man and he's fully God, but he's got this knowledge and he says, Bring your husband here. Very practical thing to say. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he starts to tell her, I know that. That's why I asked you that. You've had five husbands, and the man that you now live with is not your husband. You're living with him in sin. And so the woman said to him, Sir, she's starting to get that this is a spiritual thing, that God is involved in this conversation. And she says, Sir, I perceive, or I'm having revealed to me that you're a prophet. You're a mouthpiece of God. You couldn't know this unless God speaks to you. So she's getting closer to realize who she's talking to, right? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, where would she get that? Where would she get that there's only one place to worship God? Well, in the Old Testament, that's what God told them. They started out, they had this tabernacle, and they carried it with them everywhere they went. And then you get to the time of David. And David said, I want to build a house for God. And God said, no, you can't. But your son Solomon, after you will. So David gathered all the stuff. Solomon had wisdom more than any other man that ever existed. And he took the plans of God that God revealed. And he built this one place. Only one place that the Jews could go to worship God. And so when they built this place, that was where you went and meet with God. Kind of like Jesus. There's only one way to worship the Father, and that is through 
the one person, Jesus Christ. And so he, she says to him, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where you want ought to worship. In other words, we've set up kind of our own worship system here. Well, people do that, right? God says, the only way you can worship me is through Jesus. And they go, yeah, but I kind of do my own thing over here. And God says, there's only one way, which people don't like because people like to have many options. And God says, there's one option, my son. And so Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. He's, he's not speaking to her in a vulgar way, by like, like, woman, you know, get in the kitchen, make me a sandwich. He, she's not, he's not saying that. He's saying woman. He's speaking to her in a very nice way, actually, for someone to be speaking to someone who they knew was currently living in sin. He spoke to her respectfully. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. In other words, you have a little bit of an ignorance about how God is to be worshiped. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And God said that. He said, I'm going to bless this nation, Jacob, Israel, and I'm going to send forth from Jacob this Savior, this Messiah, this King, who will come and ransom his people. And so he says, salvation is of the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming, and it's already here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. He says in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, we don't have time to get into that today, but in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. Messiah is not necessarily his name, it's his title, the one who delivers, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the, the king, the deliverer, uh, the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. This is what she says. And Jesus says something to her that I think is monumental. Because there are many cults, there are many groups that will say that Jesus is not God. They will say that. If you ever have somebody come up to your house and you wonder or not if they're a Christian, they got the tie on and they rode up on their bikes, or now I think they have little like Ford Festivas or something, they'll come up to you and they'll very be, be very clean cut and all you have to do to know whether or not they're actually Christians or not is ask what they believe about Jesus. Because if they believe that he was the Son of God but not really God, that's not it. But if they believe that Jesus was the Son of God, he is the Son of God, he ever lives to intercede for those who follow him, uh, if they believe that he is God, then, then they are Christian. But what it says there in verse 26 is something that settles the whole issue. Jesus said to her from his own lips, I who speak to you am he. There are many people that say that Jesus never told anyone that he was God. Well, just right here, there's one verse. There's many other ones where Jesus, plain as day, says, hey, I am God. And that's why they wanted to kill him. Because to say that you are God to the Jews was blasphemous. So, at this point, verse 27, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. First of all, that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They didn't question him, although it sounds like in their minds they were kind of like, what's he doing? Why is he talking to this woman? Why, are, why didn't he come with us to town to get some sandwiches or whatever they would eat, fish and loaves? 
And the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? And then they went out of the city and they came to him. I think it's interesting because many times people have interactions with Jesus and they don't even know it. God has relentlessly pursued you. If you have a relationship with Jesus, it wasn't because you went looking for him. You were lost. He is not. He is coming to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek you out. If you know anything about the Lord at all, he's revealed it to you by his spirit. And so this woman, he must need go and see. He had to go through Samaria, for, if for nothing else, to meet this woman. Many people would not talk to her at all, but here he comes. He's come to see this woman, this personal person that was going to be at the well. And when he got there, he spoke to her respectfully. And because of what he said to her, imagine this. Imagine you go to some place in town and you some, know somebody that has the life of this woman. She's been married five times. And at the end of it, she's living with this guy and she's not even married to him. Imagine if the Lord told you, I want you to go talk to that woman. And I want you to tell her that you know that she's living in sin. What kind of reaction do you think you'd get out of the woman? Maybe she'd scream at you, yell at you, tell you that you need to go away and stop judging her. You know, who knows? I don't think it would be a favorable response. Now, at the same time, many people, because of sin, they're hardened by it, so she may not be offended at all. But God wants to do something greater in this woman's life. And so because of that, he calls her out. But I don't believe that he went out and said, you know, God hates you or God's angry with you. I think he went out and talked to her and he said, hey, I know this about you. Did you know that God knows you? Do you know that God knows your neighbor? He knows all the people in this valley, the ones that live at, is it Lone Pine? He knows all the people that, that are wandering the streets lonely and some of the ones that are homeless or don't have much. He knows every single person by name. Psalm 139 says he knew them before their mother even knew they were in the womb. He, he knits them together. Every single person that ever has the breath of life has meaning and purpose. God doesn't make accidents. And I don't know how that works out because I know many children come into this world because of sin of their parents, but God still, he has reasons for them coming. And so this woman finds out that God knows about her through Jesus, who says to her specifically, I know this thing. And maybe she had been hiding it. Maybe she had been flaunting it. I don't know. But he came and spoke to her, a Jew who would never speak to them. And then he told him so that her something that he knew about him. And because of that, look at this, her response is to run into town and tell everybody about it. Come and see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that's going to deliver me from my current situation that I can't stand, but I don't know how to get out of it? In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, hey, you need to eat some food. She's run off to town. He's still standing there. And he says to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? How in the world could he possibly have any food? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He knew his time was short in this life. 
Zoom forward to verse 39. It says there, many of the Samaritans that were in the city believed in Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified. All she said to them was this, he told me all that I ever did. There's no talk about repentance. There's no talk about I've believed in him. There's no talk about you need to be saved from your sins. All it says is that he, she went and told them, hey, this guy told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed with them for two days, and many more believed because of his own word. This woman went to the well expecting to get water. She had a personal interaction with Jesus himself. Because of that personal interaction, she wanted to tell everybody else about it. She went to town, and when she came back, she brought this huge group of people that wanted to meet this person that it seemed like had a connection with God that they hadn't ever seen. And when they show up, they showed up because of what she said. There will be many people that will believe in the Lord because of what you say. Or they will not believe in the Lord because of what you don't say. Or because of what you say you believe and you don't live out. All of those things. But what I want to point out is when you bring people to Jesus because you've found where he is, or really he's found you, When you bring people to Jesus, the desire is that they would no longer believe in Jesus because of what you say, but that they would start to believe in Jesus because of what he says. We don't want them to meet us or our brand of Christianity. We want them to meet the Savior who saved us. And if they will meet the Savior who saved us, look what it says there. Many more believed because of his word. His word doesn't change. Verse 42, Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I love this interaction. Meeting with Jesus, knowing him. One of the things that impacted me the most this week at camp was on um, Friday night, the pastor from the journey in uh, Herculaneum actually got up and he shared, and his topic was to teach children, the children's, that they need to read their Bibles. But he said, you know, I grew up going to church camp, and every time, he said, we would leave and be like, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to do it every day, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to grow, 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 like the song says. And he said, you know, I'm not saying that what they were saying was wrong, because it wasn't. It was beautiful. It was needed information, because it's true. We will read the Word of God, and we will spend time praying and talking to the Lord and listening for His voice. We're going to grow. But the reality is, many times we don't know why we need to do those things. And the purpose of reading God's Word is to know Him. Paul said this in First, Second um, Timothy chapter 1. Paul went on all these missionary journeys, He was stoned nearly to death. He was on a ship on the way to be imprisoned in Rome. And he was on on the sea for a night and a day. But this is what he wrote to Timothy right before he was killed on his imprisonment in Rome. In 1 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12, he's talked about that God had called him as as a preacher, as an apostle, and as a teacher for the Gentiles. He says, for this reason, I also suffer many things. Nevertheless, he's saying those things don't stop me from doing what God's called me to do. He says, nevertheless, I am not ashamed. 
for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. He didn't know information, he knows a person. This woman in Samaria didn't meet information, didn't meet a church, didn't meet a situation. She met Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. And when she interacted with him and talked with him very simply, it impacted her in such a deep a way that she wanted to go and tell others what she had just learned. And when she came back, she had such a large group of people. They spent two days with Jesus and they believed in him. How amazing is that? So I guess I want to challenge you in the same way that he challenged uh, the kids this weekend. Number one, do you read your Bibles? And number two, why do you read your Bibles? Are you reading it just to check the box? Are you reading it because you feel like you have to? Or are you doing it to grow closer to the one who saved you and told you everything he ever knew about you and forgave you anyway? So that's all I have this morning. Next week... We will begin in either Galatians or Jonah. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> I'm not settled on it yet, but let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing story of one woman of many, many, many who have encountered and been interacted with by Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we overcomplicate sharing the gospel with people. We make it too hard Help us to remember all that you have shown us, all that you have done in our lives personally, and just to simply go tell people about that. Lord, help us to be so in love with you that we remember how we first met, just like people are so excited about how they met their spouse. Lord, I, I, I recount to people all the time how I met my wife. Lord, help me to be just as excited to recount to them how I met my Savior. And Lord, as we become familiar with that story, and as we remember back to your mercy and your forgiveness and the peace that came from knowing you, Lord, help us to share that story with people that are looking for water, people that are hungry, people that are thirsty, people that are hurting and have no purpose or meaning. And Lord, as we bring them back to you, I pray that they would come to know you, not because of just what we say, but because of what you reveal to them. Open the eyes of their hearts, open their ears to hear and to see and to experience the love of the Father through Jesus. Father, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to meet this morning. I pray that each person here would be stirred up, that we would be reminded of your faithfulness, and that we would have a new desire. Lord, give us a new desire to know you through your word, through prayer, through just spending time in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with the song.